0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today, we have episode 297 for November 7th, 2022. Just three away from the big 300th episode. Uh, So I'll be interviewing Bruce Schneier next week for that episode. My interview will be next week. And of course, I got to edit it and put it together. Uh, We're going to be talking about how we're starting to use artificial intelligence for hacking. And not just computer hacking. Bruce has a really interesting take on hacking things like political systems and financial systems, legal systems, even our cognitive systems. It's going to be a really fun show. You're not going to to want to miss that one. I'm still working out the final details of the upcoming listener contest and patron promotions. All of that will be announced on the 300th episode as well to celebrate the 300th episode and the upcoming fifth edition of my book. All of which is just three weeks away. Uh, I still have a Twitter account. Though it has been a real dumpster fire over there right now, Elon has fired half the workforce and is just doing crazy stuff. Half the comments on Twitter right now are about Twitter. At least with the people I follow, it's it's nuts. I have no idea how this is going to shake out. So it's been a little bit of a light news week, or maybe it's just been because I've been so busy, you know, writing the fifth edition of the book. Uh, I'm about three quarters of the way done. I think, uh, it's going quicker here toward the end as I hoped it would. I'm hoping, hoping, hoping to have all of my first drafts done by the end of next week, by the time you hear the next podcast and we've already got a pipeline going. The technical reviews are already getting done on some of the earlier chapters. Then they will go to the, you know, kind of the regular copy editing phase and formatting phase and all that kind of stuff. So it's all happening. Uh, but my part, my main part anyway, will be done hopefully in about a week. This book is definitely gonna be bigger than the last one. The last one was 400 pages. This one is probably gonna be closer to 450 if I had to guess. The current edition has uh, 170 tips in it. This one's gonna have 180, 190. I, might, maybe, I don't know if I'm gonna break 200, we'll see. But it's really quite the update. Uh, I'm doing a lot of new work for this one. Not just updating screenshots, but um, I've a- I've added a whole chapter. I've added several new sections. I've updated many, many other sections. This is really going to be a major update to the book. I'm hoping, hoping, hoping that this will be out no later than uh, early January. If I'm somehow super lucky, it'll be available for Christmas. I'm hoping it's at least gonna be pre-orderable by Christmas, but we shall see. A lot of that is not up to me other than me getting my stuff done as quickly as possible. All right, so we've got several news stories for you today. We're gonna start off with a story from Microsoft. Uh, about the uptick in hackers leveraging publicly disclosed zero day vulnerabilities and basically saying that the bad guys are picking up on, you know, software patches as soon as they come out, reverse engineering them, and quickly using them to try to exploit computers that have not been updated. Got an article from Believe the Computer about some rogue Chrome extensions with over a million installs that are trying to hijack your browser links in order to make some money, but it could be worse. PC World has an article about a, a kind of an upcoming Microsoft tool that hasn't been widely publicized yet uh, that sounds pretty cool. I got a couple articles about Apple. One is about clarifying their security update policy that I, that you should definitely be aware of. And another one later about Apple getting more into advertising, which just drives me nuts. Got a couple articles from Wired. What about how algorithms are being used in Washington, D.C.? Just as a sample, these guys did a study about how algorithms are affecting daily lives for people in in D.C. And another article uh, about some disturbing expansion of the use of facial recognition technology in sporting stadiums around the globe. I've got an article from Gizmodo about how Uber is planning to shove ads in your face as often as possible in every situation possible that you might interact with uber i've got a little bit of an update on clearview ai from uh, naked security blog and then i've got a dear carry question for you that i will i will try to answer this is a tough one this week and then i've got my tip of the week we're gonna sadly we're gonna have to revisit the whole qr code thing so lots to talk about let's get to the news Okay, so first up, this is from Hacker News. This is a story about uh, a Microsoft report. Microsoft is warning of an uptick among nation state and criminal actors increasingly leveraging publicly disclosed zero day vulnerabilities for breaching target environments. The tech giant, in its 114-page digital defense report, said it has, quote, observed a reduction in the time between the announcement of a vulnerability and the commoditization of that vulnerability, unquote, making it imperative that organizations patch such exploits in a timely manner. This also corroborates with an April 2022 advisory from the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, which found that bad actors are, quote-unquote, aggressively targeting newly disclosed software bugs against broad targets globally. Microsoft noted that it takes only 14 days on average for an exploit to be available in the wild after public disclosure of a flaw, stating that while zero-day attacks are initially limited in scope, they tend to swiftly be adopted by other threat actors, leading to indiscriminate probing events before the patches are installed. It further accused Chinese state-sponsored groups of being particularly proficient at discovering and developing zero-day exploits. This has been compounded by the fact that the Cyberspace Administration of China, or CAC, enacted a new vulnerability reporting regulation in September of 2021 that requires security flaws to be reported to the government prior to them being shared with the product developers. Redmond further said the law could enable government-backed elements to stockpile and weaponize the reported bugs, resulting in the increased use of zero days for espionage activities designed to advance China's economic and military interests. The findings also come almost a month after CISA released a list of top vulnerabilities weaponized by China-based actors since 2020 to steal intellectual property and develop access into sensitive networks. Uh, and this is a quote from the report from Microsoft says, quote, zero day vulnerabilities are a particularly effective means for initial exploitation. And once publicly exposed, vulnerabilities can be rapidly reused by other nation state and criminal actors, unquote. So, yeah, basically what this is saying is, you know, it's good that we're <laughs> disclosing that, you know, these vulnerabilities are out there, but we need responsible disclosure that. That uh, law from China is kind of weird and kind of suspicious, honestly. <laughs> you really don't want to report these things until the, the makers of the software with the bugs have time to fix it. Now, sometimes these companies drag their feet and eventually you just have to say, look, if you're, if you're not going to fix this, we're just going to release it anyway and force your hand. Sometimes that does happen. But the way this process is supposed to work is you go to the company with the software that has the bug in it and say, hey, you got you got a problem right here. Uh, you need to get that fixed and then give them some time to fix it, let them fix it and then you announce it so that you know, hopefully by the time it's announced to the world, patches, the software updates that fix the problem are available. But what this report basically is saying is that there is still a lag, right? Just because the software is available doesn't mean people have actually installed it and this is a real problem we have uh the, the, the patch is out there, the fix is there, but, but people just don't pay attention and they don't get their software updated. And this is obviously a real big problem in, in corporations, you know, where there's sensitive information and, you know, where espionage and things like that can get at this stuff or ransomware attacks can get at this stuff because companies haven't updated quickly enough and companies have a tough, I mean, you know, they can't just willy nilly update everything all the time they've got all these systems running software and sometimes they're running software that is dependent on other software that where these patches might break that and they've got to do testing and vetting and things like that but you know companies have a really kind of a slow process for rolling out major changes Uh, so there are some challenges there but i mean at the end of the day what this report is basically saying is you got to get on it you you need to prioritize these updates especially for these really bad bugs and we, of course, need to be doing the same things as regular everyday people with our computers and our devices. We need to be updating our software with those security patches as soon as they come out. At least we, for the most part, can set up auto-update and make these things happen automatically, which I highly recommend that you do. All right, next up, this is from Bleeping Computer and it's about some rogue Chrome, uh, Chrome browser extensions. Researchers at Guardio Labs have discovered a new malvertising campaign pushing Google Chrome extensions that hijack searches and insert affiliate links into web pages. Because all of these extensions offer color customization options, I'll talk about that in a minute, and arrive on the victim's machine with no malicious code to evade detection. The analyst named the campaign Dormant Colors. According to the Guardia report by mid-October 2022, 30 variants of the browser extensions were available on both Chrome and Edge web stores, amassing over a million installs. And the article lists these off. I'm just going to list a few just you'll you'll, you'll get the idea. These are these are the names of the extensions, you know, Action Colors, Nino Colors, More Styles, Super Colors, Refresh Color, Dude Colors. Uh, border colors. I don't know. Obviously, these are like themes. These are things to make your browser look look pretty, I guess. And they all have very, very similar names, and they all do similar things. The infection begins with advertisements or redirects when visiting web pages that offer a video or download. However, when attempting to download the program or watch the video, you are redirected to another site stating you must install an extension to continue. When the visitor clicks on the OK or Continue button, they are prompted to install an innocuous-looking, color-changing extension. However, when these extensions are first installed, they will redirect users to various pages that side-load malicious scripts that instruct the extension on how to perform search hijacking and on what sites to insert affiliate links. When performing search hijacking, the extension will redirect search queries to return results from sites affiliated with the extension developer, thus generating income from ad impressions and the sale of search data. Dormant Colors goes beyond this by also hijacking the victim's browsing on an extensive list of 10,000 websites by automatically redirecting users to the same page, but this time with affiliate links appended to the URL. Once the affiliate tags are appended to the URL, any purchase made on the site will generate a commission for the developers. The researchers warn that using the same stealthy malicious code sideloading technique, the operators of Colors could achieve potentially nastier things than hijacking affiliations. The researchers say it's possible to redirect victims to phishing pages to steal credentials from Microsoft 365, Google Workspace, bank sites, or social media platforms. While there are no signs that the campaigns are performing this more malicious behavior, the researchers say it could be enabled simply by sideloading additional scripts. The extensions and the websites listed in the report's uh, Indicators of Compromise section have been removed or taken offline, but the researchers warn that the operation is constantly renewed with new add-on names and domains. All right, so a couple things here. First of all, so what they're doing here, These they're tricking you or kind of enticing you into in- installing these browser plugins that you don't need on Chrome and on Edge. They do something kind of funny or whatever, but behind the scenes, these extensions, they have a lot of capability. Uh, They're basically adding software to your web browser, and, and what they're doing in this case, is they are kind of acting as a go-between between you and many other sites at, that provide what are called affiliate links. And these are kickbacks, basically, when if you use an affiliate link to go buy something like you, you this happens a lot on a review sites. So you go to a site and it says, this is the best router there is, or these is the best, you know, mixed nuts on the planet or whatever. And they have a link and you click that link and it's a special link. And that link doesn't just take you to the website and show you the you know the, the thing that they're recommending it's also got a little extra information out there saying hey you know it's like, it's like saying when you go there tell them I sent you the link has a unique affiliate ID and when you go to that site that is noted by the site that you go to and then eventually because you've registered with that site as an affiliate they will give you some sort of a kickback and it's usually it's, you know, sometimes it's a little bit of money just for getting them to come to your site. And then if they actually buy something on your site, sometimes you, you get a fixed kickback after that, or even sometimes a percentage kickback. So the second part of this that I want to draw your attention to is that all of this is, uh, comes about because the internet is based on ad revenue you know, nobody wants to pay for anything anymore. And so they expect free stuff. So they get free stuff, then we got to show you ads. And so there's this whole economy built around ads and, you know, it's turned into things like affiliate links where, Hey, we need people to buy stuff here. So we'll give you a piece of the action. If you can you know, redirect them to our site, just let them know that, you know, use the special link that we give you so that when it comes in, I know that they got here because you recommended them and these guys are basically inserting themselves automatically into all these links instead of, you know, trying to get you to go to websites for reviews of products and then, you know, littering that review page with a bunch of these affiliate links, they just insert themselves <laughs> automatically. If you're just good, if you're going to Amazon, for example, and I'm not sure if that's one of the sites in question here, but it could be. The way this would work is you've got this extension in your browser and when you just go to Amazon on your own, it automatically redirects itself through its affiliate link and then takes you to Amazon so that anything you buy on Amazon now looks like, you know, you got there because these guys referred you to Amazon. And this article's right. I mean, this is that's relatively benign at least from your from your perspective, but you know, they could be doing horrible things. They could be redirecting you to fake websites and phishing websites and sites laced with malware. I mean, it could be a lot worse. So, bottom line, do not install any extensions in your browser that you don't absolutely positively need. I have like two. LastPass and UBlock Origin. There are a lot of fun extensions out there. I get it. <laughs> Honey is a popular one, right? You know, I like what you know that helps you save money. You know, whatever site you're on, it, it offers coupons and things. I get it. That's fun. But these the browser extensions can really get up to a lot of mischief. And they could be privacy nightmares. So disable and delete as many of these extra browser extensions as possible all right let's move on Uh, here's a short article from pc world and this is about a windows tool that i think some of you might be interested in knowing about Windows often gets bogged down with unnecessary files, kind of like a teenager's bedroom floor. Microsoft has improved both Windows itself and the tools designed to manage it in the last few years, and it looks like the company is preparing yet another way for users to keep their PCs running smoothly. A beta version of PC Manager, and that's in quotes, that's the name of this tool, has appeared on Microsoft's site in China, apparently offering a completed tool that should look familiar to the users of the classic CCleaner freeware. Though the site is entirely in Chinese, the tool itself has Microsoft's publisher signature and appears to be safe and complete, and it installs in English on my PC. It offers a centralized location for several tools that are already present in disparate part of Windows' various settings, menus, and management programs. The apparently complete tool will clear away unused temp files, perform a deep scrub of storage disks, and quickly show running processes and startup programs, the Security tab is basically an easy interface for Windows Update and Windows Security. The app was spotted by The Verge, which notes a lot of similarities to freeware PC optimization tools like CCleaner. It also is yet another example of Microsoft's less-than-subtle push for users to switch to its Edge browser. The Browser Protection tab, I guess this is a tab in this, in this new tool, offers a dedicated switch button. But bringing back an easy-to-use, easy-to-recommend cleaner tool might be a big deal for those of us who are our family's de facto tech support departments. For more than a decade, a program called CCleaner was at the top of every freeware recommendation list. It was an idiot-proof way to clear up the often-messy Windows registry and other unwanted files gunking up a hard drive. But after the developer was acquired by Avast in 2017, bundled with the often-pushy antivirus software and accidentally came with a Trojan horse infecting millions of computers, it had a hard and fast fall from grace. CCleaner is still offered by Avast in both free and paid forms but it's been largely eclipsed by other freeware and more user accessible tools built into windows. Despite the tool being marked as public beta, Microsoft hasn't made any mention of PC manager outside of China. We'll be keeping an eye out for the wider release. So if you want to uh, look further, this uh, check out the article, otherwise just kind of keep your eyes open for this tool. It sounds like a really fun windows tool. I I think I'm even going to mention it, you know, tangentially in the book in case it comes out after the book's release. Because these kind of tools are really great for for cleaning up uh, your your PC. All right, now, here's one of the first uh, Apple articles. This is from Ars Technica. Earlier this week, Apple released a document clarifying its terminology and policies around software upgrades and updates. Most of the information in the document isn't new, but the company did provide one clarification about its update policy that it hadn't made explicit before. Despite providing security updates for multiple versions of Mac OS and iOS at any given time, Apple says that only devices running the most recent major operating system versions would expect to be fully protected. Throughout the document, Apple uses upgrade to refer to major OS releases that can add big new features and user interface changes, and update to refer to smaller but more frequently released patches that mostly fix bugs and address security problems though these can occasionally enable minor feature additions or improvements as well. So updating from iOS 15 to iOS 16 or macOS 12 to macOS 13 is an upgrade. Upgrading from iOS 16.0 to 16.1 or macOS 12.5 to 12.6 or 12.6.1 is an update. And this is a quote from Apple in this report it says, "Quote: Because of dependency on architecture and system changes to any current version of macOS, for example macOS 13, not all known security issues are addressed in previous versions, for example, Mac OS 12, unquote. In other words, while Apple will provide security-related updates for older versions of its operating systems, only the most recent upgrades will receive updates for every security problem that Apple knows about. Apple currently provides security updates to Mac OS 11 Big Sur and Mac OS 12 Monterey, alongside the newly released Mac OS Ventura. And in the past, it has released security updates for older iOS versions for devices that can't install the latest upgrades. This confirms something that independent security researchers have been aware of for a while, but that Apple hasn't publicly articulated before. Intego or Antigo, chief security analyst Joshua Long has tracked the CVEs patched by different macOS and iOS updates for years and generally found that the bugs patched in the newest OS versions can go months before being patched in older but still ostensibly supported versions when they're patched at all. This is relevant for Mac users because Apple drops support for older Macs and iDevice models in most upgrades, something that has been accelerated somewhat for older Intel Macs in recent years. Most Macs still receive six or seven years of upgrades, but another two years of updates. This means that every year there's a new batch of devices that are still getting some security updates, but not all of them. That said, this probably shouldn't dramatically change your calculus when uh, for when to upgrade or stop using an older Mac. Most people running an up-to-date Big Sur or Monterey installation with an up-to-date Safari browser should be safe from most high-priority threats, especially if you also keep the other apps on your Mac updated. And Apple's documentation doesn't change anything about how it updates older software. It merely, it merely confirms something that had already been observed. Okay, so the important takeaway from this is you should always be on the most recent mac operating system or ios operating system version that you can support and i actually just went through this exact same description in the book uh recently when i kind of talked about a difference between major updates and minor updates major updates being upgrades and i use that term as well and minor updates being security fixes which you know semantically sounds wrong because the minor updates in this case are actually the most important ones at least from a security perspective but what this article is saying is that apple will first patch the most recent versions of its operating system and then maybe patch older versions at least for the really severe stuff. And I think, you know, that makes sense. But it is kind of important that we actually know that that is Apple's policy and that is how this works and therefore to be safest, you really want to be on the most recent versions of all these operating systems. And luckily with Apple, all these upgrades are free. So there's really no reason not to do it. All right, moving on. This is an article from Wired. And it's about the use of algorithms in many different areas of life in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is the home base of the most powerful government on Earth. It's also home to 690,000 people and 29 obscure algorithms that shape their lives. City agencies use automation to screen housing applicants, predict criminal recidivism, identified food assistance fraud, determine if a high schooler is likely to drop out, inform sentencing decisions for young people, and many other things. That snapshot of semi-automated urban life comes from a new report from the Electronic Privacy Information Center, or EPIC. The nonprofit spent 14 months investigating the city's use of algorithms and found they were used across 20 agencies, with more than a third deployed in policing and criminal justice. For many systems, city agencies would not provide full details on how their technology worked or was used. The project team concluded that the city is likely using still more algorithms that they were not able to uncover. The findings are notable beyond D.C. because they add to the evidence that many cities have quietly put bureaucratic algorithms to work across their departments where they can contribute to decisions that affect citizens' lives. Government agencies often turn to automation in hopes of adding efficiency or objectivity to bureaucratic processes, but it's often difficult for citizens to know they are at work, and some systems have been found to discriminate and lead to decisions that ruin human human lives. In Michigan, an unemployment fraud detection algorithm with a 93% error rate caused 40,000 false fraud allegations in 2020 a 2020 analysis by stanford university and new york university found that nearly half of federal agencies are using some form of automated decision-making systems epic dug deep into one city's use of algorithms to give a sense of the many ways that they can influence citizens lives and encourage people in other places to undertake similar exercises ben winters who leads the nonprofit's work on ai and human rights says washington was chosen in part because roughly half the city's residents identifies black and this is a quote from uh, winters quote more often than not automated decision-making systems have disproportionate impacts on black communities unquote the project found evidence that automated traffic enforcement cameras are disproportionately placed in neighborhoods with more black residents cities with significant black populations have recently played a central role in campaigns against municipal algorithms particularly in policing. Detroit became an epicenter for debates about facial recognition following the false arrests of Robert Williams and Michael Oliver in 2019 after algorithms misidentified them. In 2015, the deployment of face recognition in Baltimore after the death of Freddie Gray in police custody led to the first congressional investigations of law enforcement use of the technology. EPIC hunted algorithms by looking for public disclosures by city agencies and also filed public records requests, requesting contracts, data sharing agreements, privacy impact assessments, and other information. Six out of 12 city agencies responded, sharing documents such as a $295,000 contract with Pondera Systems, owned by Thomson Reuters, which makes fraud detection software called Fraudcaster used to screen food assistance applicants. Earlier this year, California officials found that more than half of 1.1 million claims by state residents that Pandera software flagged as suspicious were in fact legitimate. But in general, agencies were unwilling to share information about their systems, citing trade secrecy and confidentiality. That made it nearly impossible to identify every algorithm used in D.C. Earlier this year, a Yale Law School project made a similar attempt to count algorithms used by state agencies in Connecticut, but were also hampered by claims of trade secrecy. Epic says the governments can help ciz- citizens understand their use of algorithms by requiring disclosure anytime a system makes an important decision about a person's life. And some elected officials have favored the idea of requiring public registries of automated decision making systems used by governments. Last month, lawmakers in Pennsylvania, where a screening algorithm had accused low income parents of neglect, proposed an algorithm registry law. But Winters and others warn against thinking that algorithm registries automatically lead to accountability. New York City appointed a, quote, algorithm management and policy officer, unquote, in 2020, a new position intended to inform city agencies how to use algorithms and the public about how the city uses automated decision-making. The officer's initial report said that city agencies use 16 systems with potentially substantial impact on people's rights, with only three used by NYPD. But a separate disclosure by the NYPD under city law regulating surveillance showed that the department uses additional forms of automation for tasks like reading license plates and analyzing social media activity. All right, this this thing goes on, but uh, you get the idea here. And actually, we're going to be talking about this with Bruce a little bit too. We're starting to use artificial intelligence. Uh, that's what's behind these algorithms. To uh, I get it. We're to try to be more efficient and to try to be more fair. Right. The, the hope being, the hope being that computer algorithms would not be biased, and yet they are. Algorithms are written by humans. The data fed to these algorithms that train a lot of these systems. You know, you can give them bad data. The classic example is, you know, if we want to find more great employees for our company, well, hey, let's, let's take some of our best company employees and feed them into this algorithm to train our systems on what a good employee looks like. Well, if all your employees are old white men, you know, then that algorithm is going to come out biased, thinking that the best people for the job at your company are old white men. So we'll, again, we'll talk about this a lot more with Bruce, but just because a computer is making a decision does not make that decision unbiased. And these things do have impact. Now, of course, a lot of these things are just suggestions. I mean, when, when a, a computer algorithm you know, tells a judge that you know, this guy's chance of recidivism based on you know, these parameters are, is high, that judge can still make his own call. So there are often still people involved in these decisions. And so some of these are just tools helping people make decisions, but some of these are hundred percent automated. And I do agree that transparency is required. I don't know how you can hide behind trade secrecy or something like that in a public government institution. Okay. Well, anyway, let's, let's keep moving. This is an article from wired about the expanding use of facial recognition technology in sports stadiums around the world. This fall, more than 15,000 cameras will monitor soccer fans across eight stadiums and on the streets of Doha during the 2022 World Cup, an event expected to attract more than one million football fans from around the globe. And of course, for you in the U.S., that they're talking about soccer here, not American football. Qatar's World Cup organizers are not alone in deploying biometric technology to monitor soccer fan activity. In recent years, soccer clubs and stadiums across Europe have been introducing these security and surveillance technologies. So how accurate are these systems? Over the years, there have been cases where things have gone wrong. In 2017, face scanning technology mistakenly identified more than 2,000 people as possible criminals at the 2017 Champions League in Cardiff, UK. The system was scrapped following a court decision only to be redeployed earlier this year. In 2019, Dutch soccer club Den Bosch, and you're just going to have to forgive me if I get some of these pronunciations wrong, which uses smart cameras at its turnstiles, misidentified and banned a 20-year-old fan falsely claiming that he violently confronted supporters and entered restricted areas. And this is a quote from Ella Jakubowska, uh, who's the senior policy advisor for the civil rights nonprofit European Digital Rights. Uh, And Ella says, quote, In this case of mistaken identity, a serious risk of facial recognition technologies, an innocent person was wrongfully banned from his team's stadium and even issued with a fine. There's very little evidence that even traditional CCTV systems reduce crime. Rather, they create an appearance of safety without usually having tangible benefits, unquote. Slowly but steadily, ubiquitous biometric technology systems have come to represent a new normal for stadium infrastructure in which, quote unquote, health securitization is incorporated into systems for public safety and marketing. And this is a quote from uh, Brett Hutchins, who is a media professor at Australia's Monash University and co-author of a research paper on sports stadiums and normalization of biometric monitoring. And Brett says, quote, these elements represent three interlinked use cases for stadium surveillance technologies, which are used interchangeably and sometimes simultaneously. Public safety is a long-standing justification for the spread of biometric surveillance systems, while COVID-19 introduced a health dimension through body temperature monitoring. Marketing speaks to a seamless consumer experience for attendees at high-profile and high-cost events and encompasses everything from ease of movement in and out of the stadium through to minimizing queues for toilets and food and drinks." Unquote. Is the deployment of such systems inevitable? And this is another quote from Hutchins, quote, The problem here is that the idea that the rollout of such technologies and infrastructures are unavoidable and an increasingly natural part of the stadium experiences, unquote. He stresses the importance of, quote, clear and visible notification for spectators that such technologies are in use, unquote. Most importantly, he advocates for the introduction of, quote, strong legislative and regulatory safeguards governing the introduction and use of these systems and the control and use of data, unquote. Indeed, European lawmakers have been attempting to regulate biometric mass surveillance. In April of 2021, the European Commission submitted a proposal for an EU regulatory framework on artificial intelligence. Currently, the European Parliament is forming its opinion on the proposal, while the European Council is due to discuss the file in early December. And this is a quote from uh, Jacob Jacobovska uh, quote. The European Commission's draft AI Act recognized that biometric identification is an inherently risky technology, but bizarrely put forward a prohibition in Article 5 that is so weak, if anything, it amounts to more of a blueprint for how to conduct biometric mass surveillance than a genuine ban. There should be no exceptions to the ban, as even a supposedly narrow exception would mean that mass facial recognition infrastructure would be rolled out and primed to be switched on whenever it was deemed necessary, unquote. By definition, these systems scan the faces and bodies of every person who passes by, so it's not technically possible to limit them to, for example, suspects or perpetrators of serious crime. In the U.S., the Biden administration has proposed a blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights, which commentators consider toothless as it does not contain clear prohibitions on AI deployments that have been most controversial, like the use of facial recognition technology for mass surveillance. As Qatar prepares to roll out the red carpet, fresh reports suggest everyone traveling to the country during the World Cup will be asked to download two apps that, according to experts, essentially hand over all the information on your phone. They say this highlights the urgent need for privacy regulation in global sporting events. And this is another quote from Hutchins quote, without regulation, there is a tendency to hoover up all available data and hold onto it indefinitely. This creates honeypots for hackers and also contributes to function creep, the temptation to find other uses for this data, unquote. And this is a quote from Chakubowska, quote, law enforcement agencies should pursue the many other tools and techniques at their disposal and that are compliant with the rule of law and human rights rather than resorting to the use of technologies that have been widely condemned by civil society, human rights lawyers, and even human rights authorities. Once these tools are out there, governments will argue that they should be used widely. It's a gateway to mass surveillance, unquote. So yeah, I, I, I don't have a lot to add to that, um, but I think it's kind of interesting, you know, with the World Cup coming up, and uh, you know, obviously soccer being a worldwide phenomenon, and all these stadiums, you know, lining them all with facial recognition cameras for whatever purpose is is going to be problematic. Once you're capturing all this video, and I'm sure you're storing it somewhere, and it's probably in some cloud service, it's probably some small set of third parties that install these systems and collect all this data they're going to find other ways to monetize it and then other countries are going to find other ways to use it it's it is a really really slippery slope all right let's move on this is really nuts Uh, this is from gizmodo it appears uber just isn't content with letting users travel in peace and awkward silence during their point-to-point trips the ride-hailing company now plans to advertise to users at every point of the trip from the moment you open the app These ads will potentially appear on multiple screens, blasting consumers with new products with the same subtlety as a clown following the car on a kid-sized tricycle trying to get your attention through the car window. These so-called journey ads are meant to hit riders throughout the process of getting an Uber, including requesting the ride, waiting for the ride, and even while you're actually sitting down in the car. These will be restricted to a single advertiser, meaning users will see the same product again and again while they simply try to get from one place to another the company made it clear they will use quote-unquote first-party data for targeted advertising. But that's not all. Uber announced Wednesday that their brand-spanking-new advertising division also plans to place sponsored listings on the Uber Eats app, post checkout ads after users place an order, in-menu ads when they're deciding on an Uber Eats order, billboard ads on the Uber Eats homepage, along with a host of other sponsored emails, storefront ads, and more. The eye-numbingly long list of new advertising efforts even include a pilot to host targeted ads on in-car tablets being positioned in Los Angeles and San Francisco, California. So, if you're planning to hit up a bar, expect to see a beer brand bombarding you with ads for their latest way to get sloshed. Taking a trip to the beach? Well, how about some brand-name sunscreen? The possibilities are endless. And Uber is advertising that users will reportedly be able to remain in the Uber app while they purchase an advertised product. Uber may come into conflict with regulators for its use of geolocation data in order to advertise to consumers. In August, the FTC, or the Federal Trade Commission, sued the data broker, Kochava, alleging they were breaking the law for selling location data on, quote, hundreds of millions of people, unquote. Location data included visits to addiction recovery centers and reproductive health clinics, which is an especially threatening proposition after the end of the Roe v. Wade's abortion protections. An Uber spokesperson told the Wall Street Journal that the company only uses aggregated information from users. Uber's general manager for their advertising division, Mark Grether, meanwhile, mentioned that users can opt out of targeted ads through the Uber app. The company's advertising policies restrict restricted from having ads based on visits to reproductive health centers, as well as medical centers, schools, government buildings, and even quote-unquote adult entertainment. Even if you trust Uber to not go against its own policy, that aggregated data can still be used by both advertisers and outside data brokers to link it back to individual users. Advertisers may be restricted in what and to whom they can advertise, but outside agencies with access to this data certainly aren't. Uber is not holding back from targeted advertising at any point during the process of using their apps. In the company's release, Grether said, quote, While these consumers are making purchase decisions and waiting for their destination or delivery, we can engage them with messages from brands that are relevant to their purchase journeys. And with 1.87 billion trips last quarter, that means we can connect advertisers to consumers on average five times per month across rides and delivery, unquote. And this article goes on for a bit, but there's one little paragraph I want to throw in here and it says Uber has struggled to keep user data secure. A recent hack of Uber's systems forced the company to state that user data remained secure. The company has failed to prevent a previous loss of 57 million users data. And one of the company's former security chiefs was recently convicted of hiding a massive 2016 breach of user data from authorities. So I I don't know what to add to this, but Oh God, make it stop. I am so, so tired of being advertised to in the bonus content for my patrons last week with my, uh, Interview with Nord's uh, Andreas Vermenhoven, we talked about VR a little bit and augmented reality, and I said, "I want my augmented reality glasses whenever they come out. I want them to block ads. I want, I want a software plug-in for my new Apple VR glasses or AR glasses or whatever, to notice advertisements in my environment and cover them up with something fun, like family pictures or funny memes or something." He told me that would be a great patent idea. All right, just a couple more articles here. Uh, this one's from Naked Security. The Clearview AI saga continues. If you haven't heard of this company before, there's a very clear and concise recap from the French privacy regulator CNIL, or the the French, the the actual French for this is Commission Nationale de l'Informatique et des Libertés. So we're just going to go with CNIL. So anyway, this is this is a quote from CNIL report, and this is how they describe Clearview AI. Clearview AI collects photographs from many websites, including social media. It collects all the photographs that are directly accessible on these networks, i.e., that can be viewed without logging into an account. Images are also extracted from videos available online on all platforms. Thus, the company has collected over 20 billion images worldwide. Thanks to this collection, the company markets access to its image database in the form of a search engine in which a person can be searched using a photograph. The company offers a service to law enforcement authorities in order to identify perpetrators or victims of crime. Facial recognition technology is used to query the search engine and find a person based on their photograph. In order to do so, the company builds a biometric template, i.e. a digital representation of a person's physical characteristics, the face in this case. This biometric data are particularly sensitive, especially because they are linked to our physical identity, what we are, and enable us to identify ourselves in a unique way. The vast majority of people whose images are collected into the search engine are unaware of this feature. And then in December of 2021, CNIL said something else. They said quite bluntly, This company does not obtain the consent of the persons concerned to collect and use their photograph to supply its software. Clearview AI does not have a legitimate interest in collecting and using this data either, particularly given the intrusive and massive nature of the process, which makes it possible to retrieve the images present on the Internet of several tens of millions of Internet users in France. These people whose photographs or videos are accessible on various websites, including social media, do not reasonably expect their images to be processed by the company to supply a facial recognition system that could be used by states for law enforcement purposes. The seriousness of this breach led the CNIL chair to order Clearview AI to cease, for lack of a legal basis, the collection and use of data from people on French territory in the context of the operation of facial recognition software at markets. So this article just has a couple more things. It says, we may be about to find out how the company will be policed in the future, with CNIL losing patience with Clearview AI for not complying with its ruling to stop collecting the biometric data of French people and announcing a fine of 20 million euros. As we've written before, Clearview AI seems not only to be happy to ignore regulatory rulings issued against it, but also to expect people to feel sorry for it at the same time, and indeed to be on its side for providing what it thinks is a vital service to society. So yeah, this this guy, this uh, Tontat guy, the guy that's the head of this company is a real piece of work. I mean, he obviously believes in what he's doing. He thinks he's creating tools for the good guys. And I think we're going to be hard pressed legally to say that he can't do it. I mean, I I, I know what this French uh, regulatory agency is saying, I get it. But all these pictures are out there. They're freely available. If you can get to these pictures without creating an account, they're, they're there for the taking. Now, Facebook and LinkedIn and all these other companies, you know, have terms of service that say you can't use that. But I mean, who did terms of service apply to? I mean, if you don't even have an account, how can you agree to terms of service? The only legal victory that I can think of that really applies here is the one from Illinois with its Biometric Information Privacy Act, the BIPA. And they successfully sued Clearview AI because they had a law in the books that says you can't do that. So the the only way. The only way we're going to stop stuff like this from happening is to have regulations and say you can't do it. Now, since this company, I guess, is outside the jurisdiction of France and some of these other countries, I think right now it sounds like they're basically blowing off. I mean, th- this is not the first time that these guys have been fined and told to cease and desist. And I think they just say, yeah, make me. And because they're outside that country, I guess there's really not much they can do about it. So... I don't know, this is coming to a head. I hope that these guys finally get shut down somehow, some way. But right now they're basically just getting away with it. All right, last up, and this one's really short uh, (laughs) because I'm not going to read the whole article. In fact, I'm just going to read a little bit of it. Uh, This is from Life Hacker, and it's called How to Block Apple's Own Ads on Your iPhone. And I'm not going to go into the details. I'm just going to kind of give you the thumbnail sketch. And if you really want to try these things, you can go to the show notes and get the article. The main point about here is to me is Apple and advertising. So anyway, very quickly, it says, although you can install ad blockers on your iPhone, these apps have a glaring blind spot, Apple's own ads. No iPhone ad blocker, not even the DNS or VPN based ones can block Apple's ads for various apps, its own services and search. The worst offender in this case is the app store where Apple has included giant ads in the today view and on the search page with a sharp increase in ads from Apple. It's time to use all the tools at your disposal to start fighting back. And then it has five sections of things you can do. I'm honestly not sure how useful these things really would be. I don't think there's really any way you can stop Apple from showing you ads on a platform that it owns, but you know, it recommends at a high level, you know, disabling notifications for all your Apple apps. I don't know how useful that can really be. I mean, I need a notifications from several of these apps. That's kind of the point. Uh, you could disable personalized ads from Apple. Yeah, sure. You could do that. You don't allow Apple apps to see your location. Okay, that might work for some things, but not others like weather. Reduce analytics and other data collection. Yeah, sure, you should do that. And then stop relying on Apple for discovery, which basically means don't go through the app store to find apps. That's kind of hard not to do. So I realize this is kind of a lame story read because I I didn't really read anything. But this is just really ticking me off. Apple just needs to get out of the ad business, period, full stop. It's very small incremental revenue for Apple so far anyway. It's such a slippery slope. It's such a bad look. If Apple really wants to wear the mantle of most private tech company, they just have to stop doing ads. I'm sorry. Even if they could come up with some amazing private way of showing you semi-targeted advertising, they should just not do it. It really just looks bad. I mean, I don't want to see ads when I go to the app store. I don't want to see ads on any Apple apps. This is just beneath Apple as far as I'm concerned. They should just take the high road here and just stop stop doing advertising at all. Okay, so now let's get to my tip of the week, which is completely unrelated to any of the news stories this week. But I ran into a situation recently where I was wanting to use a QR code for something uh, and that, you know, those, those little two dimensional kind of barcode things, right? You can scan them with your phone and they'll take you to websites and they do other things too. Like you can use them to get people onto your Wi-Fi network and things like that. They're very handy. And just almost exactly a year ago, I, I wrote an article and we talked about it on the, on the podcast, because there were a lot of articles about how dangerous QR codes were. And my point at the time was, look, they're no more dangerous than a web link. Cause that's really all they are. They're just web links for the physical world. And the problem is, you can't tell where they go, which is actually true of links on web pages and things too, because what that link says it is and what it actually is could be very different, either because it's outright lying, like it says it's https://google.com, where if you hover your mouse over it, you can actually see that it's something else. But more often than not, what it also is, is it's a redirect link through a, a URL shortening service like Bitly or Owly. Twitter's got their own. There are several of them out there now. Even I have one, right? Fdsd.me. That's my Earl shortening service. And these redirects basically hide your final destination. There's no way to know where that link goes. So here's the update on the QR code saga. There is a new scam in town. And I and I realize that this is actually just a business model, but in, in my mind, it's it's a scam. And if you go to A search engine right now and say free qr code generator and just search the top search results are are these companies that do in fact offer a little web-based service where you type in like for example a link that you want to turn into a qr code For whatever reason, maybe this is going to be on your business card and you want it to send it to your LinkedIn page, or maybe it's going to be on a poster and you want to send it to to people to get more information, or maybe it's going to be uh, on placards in your restaurant where you want people to go to your menu, whatever. There's all sorts of reasons that people use QR codes. So you think, oh, well, I need to create my QR code. Let me go get this image of this physical world link that people can point their cameras at, their camera apps on Android and iOS. And once the camera app recognizes the QR code, it lets you click on it, you know, in your camera view, and it will launch your web browser and take you to wherever that QR code wants to take you. Okay, great. So these companies that are creating these free QR codes have gotten slimy. And what they're doing is you go to create a QR code, it starts to create it, and then when you say, you know, you type in what you want it to be, and you create the QR code. Oftentimes, it's really fancy, and it will actually kind of create the QR code as you type. Like as you change the characters, you can see the little square pixels on the QR code change, which is, you know, that's kind of cool, right? But then when you're done, it's got this little tiny version of it that you can kind of see, and and you click the download link. I want to download that. Well, it says, well, wait, hey, you know, sign up for an account first. You're like, huh? Okay, free account, whatever. I'll sign up for the free account. You sign up for the account, and then you get to download your, your QR code. But if you look at it very carefully, that QR code is not the one you just saw a minute ago. It's different. In fact, it probably looks less complicated, like fewer dots. That's because it is, that's because the link that that QR code represents is not the one that you entered. It is a shortened URL version of that link. It's a redirect link. So, Okay, so I scan this link and I get redirected to the site that I originally wanted to take them to. Okay, fine. Whatever. No harm done. I guess these guys are tracking when I use my link. Okay. I don't care. Yeah. Well, here's the problem. So because they have inserted themselves as a middleman in this process, they can now at any point and they do cut off that link from working unless you subscribe and pay money. They are basically now holding your QR code for ransom. So. think about how this plays out. So let's say I just ordered 500 new business cards that have this QR code on it. And literally probably by the time I get them, this one side I used had like a 14 day free trial. And it's, it's been less than 14 days since I wrote my article on this, which uh, came out last night. And so (laughs) my guess is, that in 14 days that that QR code that I downloaded will stop working. And I'm very curious to see what it takes me to, you know, like, so let's say I put this on my business card, right? And it's supposed to take me to my webpage and I hand out my business card to hundreds of people. And then all of a sudden, you know, one of them says, Hey, you know, that QR code you put on your thing, it, it doesn't work. It takes me to some other goofy page. It doesn't take me to your website. And that is true because the code on that page is not your website. It's a redirect link to your website. And the owner of that redirect link has now stopped it from working until you subscribe and pay money. So now all these things that you made based on this QR code are worthless unless you pay the fee. So how do you get around this? And this is actually the hard part is how do you know which of these services you can trust? It's difficult, uh, but. I've given you some tools in this article. And if you go to firewalls, don't stop dragons, you can see my article on this and you can see all the links and you can see these examples, but it comes down to this. You can create this QR code. And if you want to double check that it actually is a code for what you requested that code to be, there are free tools online where you can upload the image and it will tell you what it represents, like the literal raw data behind that QR code. And you can tell, and I show you how to do this in in the article, whether or not it's what you said it should be or whether or not it's one of these nasty redirect links that are you know, going to eventually stop working unless you pay the fee. I ended up just buying an app that creates QR codes. And so I assume I can trust the app because I'm paying for it. And I, like I said, I can at least with this free other tool, I can verify that all the codes that I create are actually what you know, they're supposed to be. And so far they have. But the only real advice I can give you, if you want to use one of the free ones on the web is try to find ones that give you non redirect links, look very carefully at their terms of service and how they may charge you for these links. And like for one big tip off in this one was that it's powered by bitly. If it's powered by bitly, bitly is a URL shortener. It's a redirect service. So when the QR code generator service says that it's powered by bitly, that that should tip you off right there. So anyway, that's my tip of the week. You can learn more about it by going to FirewallsDon'tStopDragots.com or hey, fdsd.me slash blog will get you there too. So fdsd.me is a URL shortener that I own and I, because I want to be able to create short, you know, short links that I can read off on the air that you might have a chance of remembering. So, hey, if you're going to trust any of these, you can trust mine, but I don't, I don't offer a free service where you could create your own. All right. So there you have it. There's your news and your tip of the week. All right, so real quick, I've got another dear Carry question for you. If you haven't sent me your questions, I would love to read them on the air and answer your questions here. To get all the details on how you can submit a question to me, uh, you go to fdsd.me/qNA. And of course, there's a link in the show notes as well. All right, so this one comes from Rob, not quite Las Vegas, Nevada. And he says, what do you think of the case going to the Supreme Court, Gonzalez versus Google LLC? My first impression is that a decision that rescinds platform immunity for content that is algorithmically amplified could be a positive one since one of Carissa Belize's suggestions and privacy is power is to limit the role of algorithms in advertising and content promotion. However, I'm not sure of the unintended consequences of such a ruling. So just to give you a little more information on this, uh, here's here's a little snippet from Gizmodo about this particular case. Let me just read that and then I'll answer the question. On Monday, and I don't know which Monday this was, this has been a while. On Monday, the Supreme Court announced nine cases it intends to hear in its upcoming term, including Ronaldo Gonzalez versus Google. The case directly questions the protections afforded by Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act, which limits the legal liability of online web hosts for content posted by their users. The case goes back to 2015 when uh, Nahomi Gonzalez, a U.S. citizen living in Paris, was shot and killed alongside 130 other people during a terrorist attack carried out by members of the Islamic State. The family of Gonzalez sued Google and said the company promoted ISIS-centric content, spreading the militant group's message and helping them radicalize and recruit new members. At the heart of Gonzalez is the question of whether 230 still shields tech companies and websites when they algorithmically recommend content, specifically third-party content, to a user's feed. Social media content recommendations are a cornerstone of how the largest tech companies operate, but the case could pin responsibility for recommended user content on those companies, completely upending the current ways most companies do business. This is a hotly contested issue, and it's gotten even worse recently, certainly since the deplatforming of President Trump uh, and some uh, other folks who have espoused some really extremist stuff on some of these social media platforms. And I want to cover a couple things. First of all, these are private companies, and this is not a First Amendment issue in the United States. The First Amendment prevents the U.S. government from restricting speech, not private companies. These private companies are free to... Kick off anybody they want for any reason they want. But what the Communication Decency Act, in particular, the Section 230 is about, is saying are these companies that host content posted by their users, you know, think people showing vacation photos, taking pictures of their current meal, posting little videos of cats or whatever, or, you know, political speech on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, whatever. Section 230 basically says that the company hosting those things is not directly liable for the content posted by its users. Now, I'm not a lawyer, and there are some exceptions to this uh, that come into play when you start doing moderation. In other words, when the company starts saying, you know, we're going to monitor what's posted here, and we're going to allow some things and not allow others, well, then they're kind of taking an active role in what is being posted, right? And and so now you can kind of say, well, they're not just a dumb neutral platform that just regurgitates what someone else posted and they're not looking at it. If they start looking at those things, then, you know, things start getting a little wishy washy. And in this particular case, what they're saying is these AI algorithms that are trying to maximize engagement and keep people scrolling for as long as possible. So I can show them more ads. These algorithms, it turns out, are bad for us. (laughs) They weren't designed this way, but it turns out that the things that keep us engaged are strong emotions. And while some emotions could be good emotions, often the ones that keep us most engaged are bad ones, you know, fear, anxiety, anger. And so these algorithms that are basically helping people get indoctrinated into some really extremist viewpoints because they keep showing them more and more stuff. Hey, if you like this, this video of you know, something that's pretty extreme. Let me give you something even more extreme. And so I guess this case is now going to be coming up in front of the Supreme Court and it's going to be really interesting. So Rob from not quite Las Vegas, Nevada, my opinion is, I don't know, this is going to be a tough one. I, I can see uh, kind of both sides of this. It's really hard to do. Moderation is an extremely difficult thing to do. At what point do these platforms have some responsibility? That that's a tough question. These algorithms you know, are not explicitly trying to radicalize people. Like I said, they're really just about maximizing engagement. And unfortunately for a lot of people, maximizing engagement usually means stoking fear and anger. I mean, my personal take on this is that I'm not sure that you can really go so far as to say that Google is responsible for those deaths. I think that's a stretch. But the real upshot here is what this may do to Section 230 and how that law is interpreted. And given the current makeup of our Supreme Court, I think it's highly likely that they will shift how that law is interpreted going forward. And I'm not sure it's going to be a good thing. So, Rob, sorry, I can't say much more than that. It's a really sticky issue. And like you, I will be watching to see how that plays out. All right. So send me your questions. I would love to answer them on the error or try to. You can send them to Carrie at firewalls, don't stop dragons.com. Again, there's a link in the show notes with more details. You can also send me an audio snippet. If you want to hear yourself or read your question, I will play that on the air and then answer it. So check that out. Please send me your questions. I need more of them. Everybody who sends me a question will be entered into a monthly raffle where I will send you a free copy of my book if you win the raffle. And I will keep your name in the hat until you win. So, you know, get, get them in sooner. That, that'll give you more chances to win. All right. Next week, I'll have my big panel discussion with three of the authors from the book Blown to Bits. That was a lot of fun. After that, I'll have a news show in which I will be covering my annual Best and Worst Gift Guide for 2022. And the one after that is the big 300. The countdown to 300, man, we are getting close. For those of you who are patrons, you'll have your Merlin's Musing Bonus Podcast on Thursday as usual. I'll be talking more about you know, the bonus podcast stuff on the 300th episode when we talk about those patron promotions, because I want you to know what that's all about, but I'm not going to do that now. But suffice to say that there's a lot of great extra stuff, bonus content and more for my patrons. If you want to look into that, go to patreon.com and look for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. And of course, there's a link in the show notes. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for the week. Take care, stay safe out there. And as always, until next week, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.